Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern you're thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctrine studies. We hope that you consider hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.christ.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our graduates who are literally serving the kingdom across this globe. Working Thank to care the being gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and Derby they will serve the as a worthwhile in investment in God's kingdom. So you can find more information about attending Southeastern uh, or supporting begin our us financially study at the two w- early, w- or what are sometimes called the eschatological epistles of Paul, first and second Thessalonians. They received the designation early because unless Galatians is first, first and second Thessalonians probably... Uh, they probably were the earliest of Paul's writings, as we'll see around 50 or 52 A.D. Secondly, they are called the eschatological epistles because their theme is the end time, last things. And so as you see on the very opening page there where we give our one-page synopsis, the theme is the coming again of the Son of God. You noted the date, as I mentioned a moment ago, A.D. 50 to 52. And then some reasons for writing, and I summarize eight of them here. To commend the Thessalonian believers, this was a good, good church. Secondly, to comfort them in the midst of persecution and affliction. Thirdly, to confirm his own conduct and motives and to explain why he had not returned to see them. There were some that were accusing Paul of being uh, duplicitous, not keeping his word, that he no longer cared for the Thessalonians. And Paul explains why he had not yet returned to see them. Fourthly, to correct wrong doctrine. They were badly uh, confused about issues related to the end time. Uh, Fifthly, to challenge them to persevere in the face of opposition and persecution. Six, to cement the affection between the Thessalonian believers and himself, a wonderful relationship, but one that was being challenged now. Seven, to caution against cliques and errors in living. And we discover that some were beginning to sit back and uh, take a laissez-faire approach to life because they believed that Christ was coming soon. And Paul uh, uh, corrects that mistake in living that was a result of their faulty theology. And then number eight, to call them to both obey and respect their leadership. And that is developed in chapter 5, verse 12 and verse 13. If you look over at page 2. Again, I provided a structural chart for you, just some of the highlights. If you look over on the right-hand side, turning it sideways, unique contributions. This is the first of Paul's letters, possibly uh, the exception being Galatians. It does set forth very clearly his style of ministry, especially in chapter 2. Thirdly, it provides insight into eschatology. First and second Thessalonians talk more about eschatology than the other 11 Pauline letters put together. Uh, It offers a balance regarding the Lord's imminent return. And there is emphasis again upon being persevering and steadfast in one's calling in ministry. If you look at the chart, we could even divide it this way. The first two chapters deal with the pastor's heart, uh, the present. The second or the last two chapters uh, deal with the believer's hope or the future. Chapter one talks about the church. Chapter two, the minister. Chapter three, your faith. Chapter four, proper conduct in light of the Lord's coming. And chapter five, preparedness in light of the Lord's coming as well. And so those are some of the unique aspects of the book of First Thessalonians. Turn with me then to page three. And we'll just note quickly some of the background issues. Authorship. 
But like many of Paul's letters, there are internal evidences that Paul wrote this letter. He is referred specifically in chapter 1, verse 1, and also chapter 2 and verse 18. Furthermore, the early church was unanimous in affirming Paul as the author, such church fathers as Irenaeus, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria. Uh, Furthermore, the internal evidence, that is the writing style and subject matter for Pauline authorship is strong. Historical allusions in the book harmonize well with what we know about Paul's life as recorded in the book of Acts. The author identifies himself, as I mentioned, as Paul. He doesn't use the title apostle, but that was not necessary. He was embraced and received and loved at Thessalonica. And so there was no need for Paul to defend his apostleship. Furthermore, this book has an interesting beginning. Paul... Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is no doubt a reference to Titus, I mean to, to Silas. Silvanus is a Latinized form. And the reason that he mentions all three of them is simply this. They were all three involved in the planting of the church in Acts chapter 17. And so because this church was undergoing persecution, because they were facing some difficulties, and because Paul's integrity was being questioned, it would have been easy for the Thessalonians to think, well, you know, Paul, uh, uh, Silas, Timothy, they came in, they hit us, things got out of control, they left us, and they don't care anymore. Paul says that is not so. And so he begins the letter not by saying there's a threefold authorship, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but rather Paul, who is the author, also has with him Silas and Timothy. And gentlemen, ladies, we want you to know all three of us are bodily concerned about what's going on. We're keeping up. We're praying for you. We know the really good things that are still happening there, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. And so he wants them to know that all of them are still very interested in the affairs of the church at Thessalonica. Now, Paul went to this particular city for very good reasons. Look at the church, Roman numeral number two, letter A. Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia and was located on a major highway called the Via Ignatia that connected Rome with the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Apparently, Thessalonica included a substantial number of Jews since it did have a synagogue, and you must have at least ten Jewish men in a city for there to be a synagogue. Letter B, Paul visited the city on his second missionary journey after leaving, I guess I could have said, after being run out of Philippi. Paul's mission was immediately successful as a number of Jews and Greeks accepted his message, Acts 17, verse 4. But just like in Philippi, Paul's success stirred other Jews of the city to a jealous rage. They violently attacked the house of a man by the name of Jason where Paul was staying. And interestingly, not Paul, but Jason and some fellow Christians were dragged before the magistrates as disturbers of the peace. And because the hostility built up at this point against the church, Paul again was forced to leave the city, recorded Acts chapter 17, verse 9 and verse 10. Now, this is an interesting background issue. It doesn't really affect the interpretation of the book. But a real good question that Bible scholars of the New Testament uh, ask is, how long did Paul minister in Thessalonica? Uh, We know that he stayed for almost three, between two and three years at Ephesus. We know he stayed for 18 months at uh, Corinth. Well, how long did he stay at Thessalonica? Well, according to Acts 17:2, Paul spent three Sabbaths preaching in the synagogue at Thessalonica. Luke's narrative seems to imply 
that the riot that forced Paul to leave occurred immediately following his ministry in the synagogue, and that Acts 17.10 indicates that the Christians sent Paul away uh, right after the riot. However, some believe because of the stability and the health of this church, and again, if God had appeared to me in the first century and said, I'll let you pick the church, you would like the pastor. Well, Philippi would have been at the top. Uh, Ephesus would not have been a bad choice. And I could have easily been persuaded to plant my life at Thessalonica as well. And so because there is a good church here, a number of New Testament scholars believe that Paul must have had a longer ministry, that there was in essence some kind of gap between his synagogue ministry and the time when he would ultimately leave the city. And so I've read uh, some uh, scholars on First Thessalonians who have argued that perhaps he even had a six-month ministry. We really cannot be dogmatic. We do know that he was there long enough to plant a really good, healthy, fine New Testament church. So, date and place of writing. After leaving Thessalonica, Paul went to Berea, where he again met opposition from the Thessalonian Jews. In other words, the Thessalonian Jews chased him out of Thessalonica and then followed him down to Berea and chased him out of Berea as well. Well, he leaves Berea and he goes to Athens. And then from there, he moved on to Corinth. And while at Athens... Paul sent Timothy to Thessalonica to ascertain the condition of the church. This actually supports a shorter ministry. He's rushed out of there. He knows that there's not been a whole lot of discipling going on. Well, what kind of condition? What kind of health is the church in? And so he sends Timothy back. And after Timothy's return, he finds Paul at Corinth. And there he wrote 1 Thessalonians. And therefore, it was written from Corinth. During his second missionary journey, somewhere around A.D. 50 to 52, you are no more than 30, excuse me, 20 years after the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Purpose in writing then. The specific news received through Timothy prompted the letter and dictated its contents. Indeed, 1 Thessalonians is quite practical, containing a message directly geared to the particular problems of this church. Though, again, is often the case. The problems in the church also gave way to Paul's theology. In other words, we know more about Pauline eschatology. What did Paul think about the end times from First and Second Thessalonians than any other books? He does address it somewhat uh, more personally in First Corinthians 15. He comes back again and does it uh, on a more personal level in Second Corinthians chapter 5. But as far as what we call cosmic eschatology, Second coming, end of the world, day of the Lord stuff, you want to go to First and Second Thessalonians. And interestingly, as I'll note in a moment, every single chapter in First Thessalonians ends with a reference to the second coming. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 all have a reference to the second coming at the end. And so what are the purposes? I list for you for narrowing down our list of eight a moment ago. First... Paul expresses his general satisfaction over the progress of the Thessalonian church. And we're going to look at chapter 1, 1 through 10 in just a moment. Secondly, Paul answers charges that that have been brought against him apparently by his Jewish opponents. Chapter 2. Thirdly, letter C, he gives exhortations toward further progress and perseverance in the Christian life. And then fourthly, he seeks to correct certain misunderstandings about future events, chapter 4 and chapter 5. In other words, from both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 
We learned that Paul did teach them about eschatology when he was there. That argues for a longer stay. You don't just show up, spend a few weeks with them, and drop a boatload of eschatology on someone. That's not really the way that you would disciple someone. But if you stay three, four, five, six months, I have no reason to doubt that Paul talked at some length about all of the salient doctrines of the Christian faith, including the doctrine of eschatology, the end time. And so that he is correcting certain misunderstandings at least indicates he had been there long enough to talk about some of them, and the false teachers had come in behind him, and they were messing everything up. Now, number five, just this is just a theological issue. There is a major issue of eschatology between what are called pre-tribulationalists, and post-tribulationalist, uh, I do know unless he's changed his eschatology that Brother Kai represents the latter. Are you still a post-tribulationalist? Oh, good. He's making progress. I'm glad to hear that. He's moving in the right direction. Um, pre-tribulationalism. Uh, basically, real quickly, when it comes to when is the rapture of the church going to occur? There are really two basic views, though we can actually give you four or five varieties. Uh, there's pre-tribulationalism. Mid-tribulationalism, post-tribulationalism, partial rapture, and pre-wrath rapture. How do you like that for, again, a mouthful? Don't worry about all of the latters. Here's what most people think. Either A, Christ will come back for his church before the tribulation. Hence the word pre-tribulation. You believe the rapture of the church that's going to meet the Lord in the air will take place before the tribulation. Some believe in what is called mid-tribulationism. That is, they believe there is going to be a seven-year period of time of tribulation. They believe that the latter part should be called the Great Tribulation, and therefore Christ will rapture the church at the midpoint, three and a half years into the tribulation. Uh, then there are others like uh, my uh, very good friends, uh, Al Moeller, James Merritt, uh, unfortunately a number of my faculty, that uh, erroneously believe that uh, Christ is going to come after the tribulation. And they believe that the church indeed will go through the seven-year period of time, though some of them begin to spiritualize that too, and they turn the day of the Lord into a long period of time and do all sorts of weird things. Uh, actually, that is not a point of fellowship. Obviously, if it were, I would not be here or they would not be here. One of us would not be here. Uh, I often tell my students, I will fight you over the truth of the rapture. I will not fight you over the time of the rapture because I don't think there's a clear, direct statement concerning the time. I think that you get there by inference. Now, I will say this before I move on. I do think the best argument, the strongest argument for pre-tribulationalism, that is we will not go through the tribulation, is the doctrine of imminency. And if you really do believe that Christ could come at any moment, that is second, as second, as Titus chapter two and verse 13 says, we should look for the blessed hope. Then you have to be either pre-tribulational or you have to do something really weird with the tribulation and argue, for example, as my friend Al Moeller, that we may be in the tribulation right now, but you just don't know it. Uh, I don't think that's an acceptable view either, but that's just a whole lot of theology that's just confusing all of you. So let me just tell you what's going on here between chapter 4 and 5. You have to raise and answer a couple of questions. Top of page 5. First of all, both chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which is the classic rapture text, and chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, which is the classic day of the Lord text, do have the same purpose. These sections are intended to provide comfort, and encouragement 
to the readers. In other words, Paul is not telling you, try to set a date for the rapture. Paul's not trying to tell you, identify the Antichrist, the false prophet. Don't try to figure out the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. He's not into any of that. He's basically telling you that these teachings have as their purpose to comfort you and to encourage you. But now, secondly, in my judgment, Paul does seem to be describing two separate events. For the believers, the rapture, chapter 4, verse 13 through 18 will be a time of blessing, and Paul uses the word parousia. Whereas for the unbeliever, what follows in chapter 5 will be a time of judgment. And hence Paul shifts his terminology there to talk about the day of the Lord. Furthermore, in my judgment, Paul seems to give a chronological relationship between these events of blessing and judgment. In other words, the events of chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the day of the Lord, the great tribulation... Follow the events of chapter 4, verse 13 through verse 18. In other words, if the rapture happens after the tribulation, it seems to me that chapter 5, 1 through 11 would have been before chapter 4, 13 through 18. He would have talked about the day of the Lord. Then he would have talked about the rapture, but he doesn't. He talks about the rapture. Then he talks about the day of of the Lord. Furthermore, in chapter 5, verse 9, in the context of the day of the Lord, he says to the Thessalonian believers, God has not appointed you to wrath. And he's not talking there about the wrath of hell. He is talking about the wrath of the day of the Lord. Hence, I think that there's more support for the pre-tribulational view. But as you work your way through the totality of 1 Thessalonians, you're going to have to at least try to understand and address some of those particular issues. So I'll throw that out for further food for thought later. Drop down then to number six, the value of the Thessalonian epistles. A, they present insight into the heart of the Apostle Paul, especially chapter 2. B, these epistles indicate how Paul worked with and helped young converts. C, both First and Second Thessalonians picture a local church in its most rudimentary, uh, basic early New Testament form. And D, as I just noted, they contain vital teaching concerning last things or the doctrine of eschatology. And so if you look at the outline on page 6, we can divide the book into two major sections again. Personal issues, we give thanks. Why? Because there is an ideal church, an ideal pastor, and an ideal fellowship that we should all aspire uh, to obtain and to measure up to. But then in 4 and 5, there are very practical words in the context of eschatology, talking about holiness in the home, love in the church, honesty in the job, hope for the dead, light for the family of God, gratitude from the saint, and obedience toward and in sanctification. Furthermore, as I mentioned a moment ago, each chapter ends with a reference to the second coming of Christ and relates his coming to salvation, chapter 1, service, chapter 2, stability, chapter 3, the sorrow of death, chapter 4, and the doctrine of sanctification, chapter 5. In other words, Paul would argue that his theology has very practical ramifications and implications for how you and I live our everyday lives. With that then said... One of the great, great chapters in all the Bible concerning the church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 through 10. If I were starting a church from scratch, going out here in a house, a storefront, a school, and I was starting from scratch, 
I would take my small group of people that were beginning that church with me, and we would immerse ourselves in at least three or four texts of Scripture. One would be Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission. And I would make absolutely certain that we would be a Great Commission church. Secondly, I would go to the birthday of the church in Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. And I would ask, what was it that God made sure they were doing when he got the church planted and started from the very beginning? And I would just immerse myself in Acts 2, 40 through 47. Thirdly, I would go to Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. And I would again immerse myself in the theology that I see as essential in the first six verses, the difference in giftedness that we find in 7 through 11, and then the fact that God equips every member of the body to do their work of ministry in verses 12 through 16. But then fourthly, I would go to and look at and examine very carefully 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Because as Chuck Swindoll says, here is a church with the right stuff. John MacArthur says, everything a church should be is found right here in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. And there's not a single word about their size, about their buildings, about their budget, about their youth camps. There's not a word about things like that. But rather, he is very concerned about things internal. He is asking, what is the character of this church when you boil it down to its very basic essence? And therefore, what kind of church should we be then? In light of what we see here, five major observations. I'll note them quickly and make a comment or two. Number one, we should be an encouraged church. Verse one is his introduction. Paul, Silas, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians, there is their geographical location. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, well, there is their spiritual location. And very interestingly, calling it the church of Thessalonica or the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father only occurs here in this letter. He puts special emphasis upon the fact that they are a church spiritually located in the realm of the care and the concern of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the classic uh, Greek greeting, grace to you and uh, peace. And I do see a threefold avenue of encouragement there. First of all, they're encouraged by their brothers in the Lord, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. This is the only time he gives three people in an opening verse like this. A reminder, they love you, they care about you, they know what's going on, they want you to know they know what's going on. Then secondly, we're encouraged by our Father. Again, as we said a few weeks ago in our 2020 conference at the seminary, Christianity is unique in affirming God as Father. You do not have a concept of God as Father in Islam, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Judaism. It's only vaguely there. And even there, it's usually the fact that he is the father of the nation of Israel. Here, he is seen as the father of every individual believer. But you receive God as your father when you receive Jesus as your Savior. And grace and peace equally flow to us. From God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, given that, you and I should be an uplifting, uplooking, positive, optimistic church. And folks, I want to tell you something. Attitude is caught, not 
taught. I can't teach you to be a howdy-doody kind of guy. Nor can I teach you to be partly cloudy with thunderstorms on the horizon. Attitude is caught, not taught. Folks, we have an attitude as a church. Every church has an attitude, a disposition, a kind of face that it puts on. In some churches you walk in, and it's just clear. They are happy in Jesus. They're not perfect. Everything doesn't go like they would want, but they're just happy in the Lord. Other churches, my goodness, it's worse than partly cloudy. Some of the thunderstorms and the lightning storms are everywhere. And people are down the mouth. People are nip, 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 whining about this, whining about that, griping about this, griping about that. I mean, they have the spiritual gift of a crab throughout the congregation. Now, I'll tell you what. What person in their right mind coming in from the outside would want to join a church like that? Answer, nobody. Oh, no. Actually, there are those that would join that kind of church. Those who also have the spiritual gift of a crab. So if you are a down-the-mouth, griping, whining, nagging, fussing, griping church, you can just expect you will also attract those same kind of people to your fellowship. On the other hand, if you're a happy church in Jesus, those kind of people won't be happy there and they'll go somewhere else. Praise God, may they go somewhere else. I'll be honest with you, folks, this is for free. I don't want everybody around here to join this church. There's some people, after I get to know them, I don't want them to join our church. Let them go join the Methodist church. I mean, go somewhere else. Cause trouble somewhere else, but don't come here because we don't want you and we don't need you. And I'm very serious about that. There's some people, I'm being just, here's my heart. If I were pastoring a church and some people started to walk the aisle, I'd stop them and go back and sit down. Or sit on the front row, but you ain't filling out no card. You ain't making it to the prayer room. You're going to sit right here. And after the service, you and I are going to have a little sweet come to Jesus talk. And knowing what you were like in your previous church, our church is, you're not joining our church. Just to help my seminary guys out, I have a young student in Louisville. And there was a couple that started visiting his church. They had gone through one, two, three other churches with a bad attitude, causing trouble, causing turmoil, uh, left all three churches out of fellowship with the pastors and the other members of the church. And so they started visiting his church. And I said, let me tell you, don't you let those people join your church. He said, well, he's about 25. What do I do if they walk the aisle? I said, you sit them on the front row, but don't you let them join. And he said, well, I said, wait, 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 wait. First of all, I don't like it when anybody begins a sentence with the word well. It's about like getting the sentence with the big word oh, which means oh, no, I wish you had not said that. So I don't like well, I don't like oh. I said, I know what you're thinking. You're young. You're inexperienced. You're green behind the ears and you think that you can fix them. You think you know better than those other three, and, I, and, I, and he knew two of them very well, godly, godly men as old as I am. And I said, Jeff, I'll tell you something. If those two pastors couldn't get those people right, you don't stand a chance. Now, I'm not telling you that to be mean. I'm telling you, don't you let those troublemakers join your church. Well, guess what? He let them join the church. Guess what? They're causing all sorts of trouble again. And see, they hear God. 
They come and say, well, God told me. Well, God told me to tell them, you ain't joining my church. We'll move on to the second point. We should be an energetic church as well. Actually, beginning at verse 2 all the way through verse 10, you have a beautiful prayer that Paul uh, gives in thanks and gratitude to the Thessalonians. I'll just make a couple of observations, just kind of do a little running commentary here for a moment. We give thanks. It's in the present tense. We're continually thanking God always for you all. Do you see how he adds up the words? Continually giving thanks. When, Paul? Always. For who? For all of them. And when we pray, or when we give thanks, we make mention of you in our prayers. Well, specifically, what do you pray for? Well, I thank God, remembering without ceasing. So he's always praying for all, continually, without ceasing, thanking God for the faith, which produces good work, their love, which produces wonderful labor, and their hope, which allows them to be patient and steadfast before Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Did you see the beautiful triad of faith, hope, and love? Remembering without ceasing your work, which proceeds from your faith, your labor, which proceeds from your love, and your patience or steadfastness, which proceeds from your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And who does he call as a witness? It is all taking place in the sight of our God and Father. And then he grounds this again, very similar to what he did in Titus, as we saw at the seminar this morning, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. And again, folks, Paul saw no problem in putting in one verse the issue of faith and another verse the issue of election. Paul had no problem in affirming in one verse the sovereignty of God and in another verse the responsibility of man to exercise faith and believe the gospel. Again, Danny Aiken, he believes that God is sovereign in saving people, that he predestines and elects people to be saved, but he does so in such a way as to do no violence to our free will and responsibility to believe the gospel. How does he do that? I don't know, and I don't have to know. I simply need to be reminded that salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. And at the same time, if you will repent and exercise faith, God will save your soul. I don't believe in anything that will cause us to lessen our passion for missions and evangelism. But I'm not going to do anything at all to chip away at the foundational doctrine of Scripture, the sovereignty, the absolute sovereignty of our God. And I think Paul could say, I can be very uh, active in uh, my faith, and I can be very active in my love, and I can be very patient in my hope because I know that my salvation is a signed, sealed, and settled issue because God has chosen me, God keeps me, and therefore I am safe and secure in what God has done for me. Therefore, I can serve God with a reckless abandonment, knowing that I cannot do one thing to lose this wonderful gift that was given to me by God. I'm telling you, when you have all that in that beautiful balance, you will be a healthy, energetic church. But now, thirdly, we should be an exemplary church, he says in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit And in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. If you take that first statement of verse 5 and turn it from a negative into a positive, 
There's four things Paul says came to them in terms of his ministry. For our gospel came to you in word. It came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. And it came in much assurance. I believe that the Spirit is what energized the word and therefore allowed it to come in power. But I believe the assurance came both from the Holy Spirit, but also, look at it now, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake, and that you indeed became, and it is the Greek word mimetes, we got our English word mimic from it, you became followers, you became mimics of, now don't you miss this, it's an amazing statement, you became followers, mimics of us, And the Lord. Now, boys and girls, if I'd been writing that, I would have written it backwards. I would have said, and you became followers of the Lord and us. But Paul doesn't do it that way. Say, well, Paul messed it up. No, Paul got it right. Because Paul understood that the first thing the Thessalonians saw in terms of the authenticity and integrity of the gospel was not the Lord. They saw Paul and Silas and Timothy. And because Paul and Silas and Timothy lived with such godly integrity before the Thessalonians, they saw the reality, the genuineness, and the truthfulness of the gospel. And therefore, they became followers of them. And then from them, the Lord. It's the same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1. You imitate me. What? As I imitate Christ. And so, folks, we need to understand that the first thing people hear and see when it comes to the gospel is us. So what kind of integrity and credibility do we bring to the message when people look and examine our lives? Well, Paul and Silas and Timothy did such a magnificent job. It says they received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. And then they followed Paul. And then it turned around, and they then became examples, the Greek word tupos, we get our word type. They became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. In other words, Paul, Silas, and Timothy show up. They begin to follow them. They follow these men to such an extent that suddenly, when you look at the Thessalonians, it's just like you're looking at Paul and Silas and Timothy. So much so that they now can turn around and do the same thing for the churches in Achaia and Macedonia that Paul and Silas and Timothy had done for them. In other words, real discipleship has occurred when the people you disciple are able to disciple somebody else. You see, the real test for us is not who are you discipling. Who are the people you discipled discipling? Then you're on to something. Until God is using your life to change others who are changing others. You have not yet completed the process that God has in mind when he talks about us being an exemplary church. But now, number four, we should also be an evangelistic church. This is remarkable as well. For from you, the word. Third time he's mentioned the word now in this first chapter. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth like the blast of a trumpet, not only in Macedonia... And Achaia, but also in every place. Now, this is one of the most remarkable statements in all the Bible. 
Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. In other words, did Paul need to brag on the church at Thessalonica? No. He was late to the party. By the time Paul writes this letter, Paul can say, you know what? I am so proud of you. Everywhere you go in modern-day Greece, go to the north, Macedonia, go to the south, Achaia, they are talking about the church at Thessalonica. And the church at Thessalonica has already exploded across Macedonia and Achaia, taking the word so that I don't need to say a thing. Your church and your passion for the gospel is saying it all. Indeed, they, that is others, are declaring concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. The word entry there means to invade enemy territory. And Paul is saying the Thessalonians told how we showed up and how we came in and brought the word. And as a result of our bringing the word with authenticity and integrity, you turned to God. There's repentance from idols to serve the living and true God. There's faith. So they turn from the wrong thing and turn toward the right thing. And therefore, Paul says, this word is resulting in the salvation of people everywhere we turn. Well, you've not completed the cycle until you also become an expectant church. Verse 10. And not only did you turn from idols, not only are you now serving the living and true God, but now you are waiting for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again as I close. Paul would say to you and to me, you want to be of some earthly good? Then you be heavenly minded. This church was so passionate. So expectant concerning the coming again of Christ, they had to get the gospel out as far and as fast as they possibly could. And so because they were heavenly minded, looking for the coming of the Lord, they did not sit back and wait and do nothing. But they got busy, they got active, and it was their looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing that became their motive for going all over the Ancient Roman world taking and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just reminds me again. We need to be heavenly minded. We need to think on things above. We need to be looking and expecting again and again and again the coming of our Lord. To do so will always put us in a position to be much more effective and much more useful for his service. And when we act like that, think like that and believe like that, then we will be the kind of church and the kind of Christian. That really does bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much that um, the church at Thessalonica had problems. Because Paul then wrote a letter. And the letter that Paul wrote tells us some wonderful things about the kind of church we should be. The kind of minister we should be. Uh, the kind of uh, life we should live. The hope and expectancy we should have concerning the coming again of our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, regardless of our eschatology, we can be looking daily for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord. May that then energize us to love you, to serve you, and as the church at Thessalonica did, to take the gospel as far and as fast as we possibly can. 
Because, Lord, the hour is late. Time is running out. We will not always have the opportunity to tell another person about the life-changing gospel of Jesus. This we ask and pray in your name. Amen.